0: When you view constructing a budget positively in all of its glory, you feel good about having one, right? Well, if you really want an extra push to encourage you to build a budget that actually makes sense, this episode takes you down the path of the psychology and the behavioral finance around doing just that. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. This episode is a great one because it checks a topic that most usually have a hard time facing head on. It's the dreaded B word, a budget. Yes, I know that B word. I can see how it gets a bad rap, but honestly, if you knew, I mean, really knew the drastic life changes you could experience as a result of establishing and then actually following a budget, you'll wonder why you never liked it before. Senior Wealth Advisor of Experience Wealth, Steve Crawford, brings his insight and his awesome Aussie accent to our community. His accent actually is really neat. You'll see it in just a second. So it's so easy to transform your mindset of having a budget and then implementing it in a way that works for you, not against you. Have you really taken the time to figure out how to build a budget that really honestly makes sense? Well, Steve and I will help you through that thinking process just a heads up, this is part one of a two-part episode. The second part is really, really good because we talk about New Year's resolutions and more on behavioral finance. So enjoy the first half as we discuss the basics, the benefits, and actually balancing of a budget. Steve, really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here and getting up bright and early for us to record.
1: No worries, mate. It's not too early. Some of my mates are tradies. Oh, wait, you don't call them tradies. Contractors. Okay. And they're like, so I go, oh, I had to get up at like 7am 7 or 7.30 and they've already been up for like an hour and a half. So, And I know your doctors who would probably when they do their earlies, I figure they're up a little bit before seven. So I really won't whinge too much about being up too early. Well, uh, excited to be on the show, bud.
0: Yeah, no, really excited to have you here. So we're going to be talking today all on budgeting and cash flow. And just trying to remove the stigma around it that it is horrible. It's dreaded. I joke about it on the show every once in a while, like the horrible B word of budget. And I probably shouldn't do that because I actually view budgeting as a way of almost freedom. So today we're just going to kind of have in mind the listener here is going to be just finishing residency or has just finished and they're experiencing a rapid increase in their salary. My thought is let's talk about what someone should look for or what they should do, or maybe some of their first steps in understanding okay, now I've got a large salary. Why should I start to either budget or plan in my cash flow?
1: Budgeting is something that I think it gets a, a bad rap. As you said, it's a lot of negative connotations, and that's because people automatically associate the dollar with the concept meaning like how much do you allocate to the budget versus the initial concept of what the heck a budget actually is. So for us, we always talk about budgets being a target that you're going to try and hit. And that target can be massive or it can be really, really small. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a target, then you don't know whether you're hitting, whether you're missing, you are just sort of shooting blind on this thing. And so for us, the first thing is that you've got to accept that unless you want to live life where you're basically just subconsciously swinging and trying to hit your spending and your savings targets. If you're happy doing that and not knowing whether or not you're doing any good, then you don't need to worry about a budget. But pretty much everybody I've met in their 20s and 30s and and even older, the way they want to get ahead whenever that happens, right? And, And this is all about trying to become financially independent. But the way they're going to do that is by earning money, spending some of it, and just not spending all of it. And the only way that happens is by saving money and the only way you know how much you're capable of saving realistically on any given year is by having a budget and giving yourself a target. So, for us, the first thing is always, always, always comes back to and I think when we're kids, we're really good at this and then as we become adults, we start to suck at it and the first question they've got to ask themselves or the first question you'd probably ask them when you're talking to them as well is... What are you saving up for?
0: Mm -hmm. What's Um, the money going to be used for?
1: What's yeah, you know, it's the saying you can lead a horse to water, right, and you can't make him drink. But it holds so true when it comes to budgeting and money. If they don't know what they're saving up for, and they don't buy into it, and you know, in their heart of hearts, in their core, there's no value, there's no emotional driver behind it, they can have the best budget system in the world, they're not hitting those targets because. When they feel stressed or when they feel tired or when they're just over it, they're going to go and spend and there's no internal accountability buddy for them. And a little voice in their head that goes, "Eh, you know, if we spend this, it means we're not going to be able to do X or, you know, we're not going to be able to have that holiday or remember that, I don't know, that new car we wanted or like we're not going to be able to do that. As kids, we're really, really good at having things that we're saving up for because we never had any money to start with, right? And then our parents would doll it out to us and and give it to us over time. And so, we'd have to build that pocket money up or you know, the allowance up. And then we'd go and buy that thing. And and so, we're sort of trained and programmed to understand from an early age, if you want something, you save up for it. Most of us, some people out there might have been a little bit more better off. But for us, we're sort of trained into that program. And I don't know what happens. It's like we get to adulthood and credit card companies start giving us free credit. And then all of a sudden, we don't have to save for things anymore. We just, if you want it, just go and buy it. And so, we sort of lose the idea that sits behind why budgets are a good thing. All budgets do is just give you balance, puts accountability into what you're doing with your money. We've got clients in our firm that for periods of their life, their savings target is 0% of their income. And it's because you know they've just had a baby and they're down to one income and then that's cool, right? If that's what they're working towards, budgeting isn't always about, I have to spend no money and, and have no life and save lots of dollars. It's about putting a bloody target next to the thing and then trying to hit it.
0: So what I hear you're saying is, really it's the behavioral finance piece, associating some type of emotion to that dollar. I look at it as you can only assign a dollar one job or one task. You know, what is it that you're going to assign it to to actually make you the happiest? Why would we spend money in something that makes us a little happy versus spending it in a different location and it making us really happy? Part of it, I think, is society and just getting caught up in, you know, whether it's ads or or marketing, I mean, there's billions of dollars that are poured into those to understand human behavior and the psychology and what causes us to buy and, and those things and taking a step back. I think that's where we really lose it is kids aren't hopefully, I mean, I guess, you know, really targeted in some of those now. Yeah, they are targeted to ads. If you're watching TV and you've got toys flashing all around, but they don't have the ability to act. Whereas as adults who earn income. You see those same type of ads for something that equates to whatever that toy was and you're able to act and then you have credit that can allow you to do that. So what I think you're saying here is being able to associate some type of emotion behind what you're doing, because if you don't do that, then no matter what you're going to try to do or implement or whatever system it is, it really won't work. Is that right?
1: Yeah, you're spot on. So that's absolutely the starting point, and you know this is sort of something that we've our firm in Australia is very much heavily anchored in clients in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and so our whole value proposition is linked to helping them manage their income as they grow it, right? Because they don't have assets yet. Mm-hmm. So we've studied for years what makes it work and what makes them successful in this space, and and obviously the opposite as well. And so maybe I'll just drop a, a stat in there to. Sort of validate why anyone would bother listening to us. or me, the average Aussie saves, and we're terrible. Like Aussies are terrible at this stuff now. And I think we're leading the world in in sucking at saving at the moment. I think at the moment we're around about 2% of our income or something, which is just all time lows, right?
0: Yeah. But on average, we do too much with that. Yeah.
1: We sort of say, look, if the average Aussie saves long term, somewhere between sort of five and 10% of their income, our average client each year for the last five financial years has saved more than 20% of their income. Mm -hmm. So we sort of look at it and go, well, why is it that our client, our clients are the average Aussies just with a program and a coach, right? And that's the only difference. Now their average income might be a little bit higher than the average Aussie, but not a lot. The number one thing is we've helped them find a reason to save in the first place. We haven't given it to them. We've helped them find one. And that's the, you know, you can't lead a horse to water stuff. Mm. If they don't want to save money yet, they just want to spend everything that they spend. They're not going to do that. So, you know, we've got loads of clients that sort of hit that. First, we saw, you know, the startup mode, you know, they're starting to earn good money. And I know that a lot of your listeners are in the same space. You've been on crappy wages or crappy income, crappy salary for a while. Then all of a sudden you get really good income and they're like, I just want to go and live for a bit. And that's cool, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We've just said, you know, you sort of get what you get and you don't get upset. It's a a saying I love using with them because if they want to go and spend that money and they're not going to save any dollars at the end of it, as long as you're consciously aware of what you're doing, we're okay. But at the end of the day, most people get to a point where they go, I wouldn't mind saving some of what I've got. So, the absolute core of the starting place is behavioral, which is... I want to save money, but I've got to have a valid reason for wanting to do that. Those that are the most successful, I'd talk about four stages of budgeting: acceptance, awareness, improvement, and then ultimately performance, which is where everybody's trying to get to. The best thing about budgeting is when you don't feel like you're actually budgeting anymore, when you're just living. But to get to that point you have to go through the other stages, and the first one is
0: yeah, Without yeah, a that's, budget,
1: I will never truly be any good at what I do. And that's the acceptance bit. I have to be in charge of this thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go into this. I love the four stages. And I was fortunate enough to hear Steve talk for a bit at the XY Planning Network conference on this, but I'd love to kind of dive into these four stages.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the first one is the only one that they can do by themselves, acceptance. I do a lot of coaching of other advisors, as you know, Ryan, about mm-hmm. this stuff. And, and they always come and going. You know, There's a lot of doctors in there as well and lawyers and professionals earning really good money, right? And so they say, I have this client that they earn really good money, but they spend all of it and they really need this. And I'm like, yeah, but do they want it? Because at the end of the day, if they don't want to, and if you don't want to save or put any accountability around how you're spending your dollars, then you're never going to get there. So the way you have to start this thought process is, I want to be accountable with my dollars, I want to make conscious decisions around my money. Even if I'm consciously choosing to spend all of it, at least I'm going to do it consciously instead of subconsciously because you can only control your conscious choices. So, that's the first thing, right? And so, acceptance that without a budget, I'm never going to be any good. But flip side, with the budget, I can now make conscious choices around my money and I can make my money look like what I want it to look like. Then you move into stage two, which is awareness. Awareness is what does it cost to be you, What does it cost to live? And what does it cost to have a life? Because they're not the same things.
0: Okay. So let's dive into this one here and go a little bit into what this second part means. The thing
1: that we talk about with our clients and the clients we coach with as well is you've got to understand you can only save saveable dollars. We highly discourage people from thinking the way you're going to save money is by not paying the rent this month or not paying utility bills saying, oh, I saved a 1000 bucks this month. It's like, yeah, dumbass, but you're sitting there with out in the street and you got no heat because you didn't pay the rent and you wouldn't pay your utilities. That's not saving money. That's not a smart way to do it. You got savable dollars. That's really all you can work with. And to know what your savable dollars are, what's available for saving and what's available for spending, you need to know what your living costs are. So typically, we break this up into... Eight different categories at a really high level, sort of your education costs, your financial costs, your food costs, your health costs, housing, you know any loan or bank charges, transport, and then your utilities. Mm-hmm. so that that's typically what we call living expenses. These are things that most people don't do for fun. They typically do because they have to do them. And so that's the first and the most important thing for them to work out is what are my living expenses? And then we typically break those down into two types. What are your fixed living expenses? And then what are your variable living expenses? So what are the things that are going to be the same amount each cycle, whether that's weekly, for bi bi-weekly? Got to remember not to say fortnightly in the US because I know that doesn't necessarily translate. And then it might just be a video game that they everyone shouldn't be playing bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, and so on, right? Okay. So how much are those? And then variable are the ones that go up and go down. But you can still draw an average. As long as you've got a long enough lens to look at these things, you can still draw a, a conservative average with this stuff. And then theoretically, once you've squared away your living expenses over a longer average, and you know what it's going roughly going to look like, and you apply the golden rule, which is always underestimate your income, always overestimate your expenses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, plan conservatively when you're looking at yeah. this.
1: Then what's left is spendable dollars and saveable dollars. And then from there, that's when you can start to split it up. So, from an awareness point of view, you're really trying to first and foremost get a cost of what do your numbers look like over a normal period. So, the problem with some of the budgeting apps is they'll cherry pick, not intentionally, just by default. So, if you sign up for mint or something like that. And usually when you start up, it'll pull the lens back and it'll look at like a three-month period or even if it does a six-month period. Everybody knows that people spend more money from a spending point of view in the summer months than they do in the winter months. Mm -hmm. If you've set your budget and you've started during the winter months and you use that as your proxy going forward, you're probably underestimating. So you read to you just need to be more conscious about how you're going through that process, and that's why we like to split it into fixed and variable. Because your fixed amounts, you know, you know, your car payment's going to be a certain amount, your loan repayment's going to be a certain amount, your rent's going to be a certain amount. So you can plug that stuff into your budget first, and actually helps from a stress point of view as well. We find with clients, I think one of the biggest fears of budgeting is also not knowing how to do it, and the fear of getting it wrong as opposed to the restriction stuff. I think everybody's smart enough to realize that, especially your audience, we're definitely smart enough to realize, if I just go you know, willingly into the night, spending like a crazed lunatic, eventually this thing's going to come back and bite me on the bum. So I'm going to have to put some sort of restriction on this. I think that usually the fear is they don't know how to start and they also don't know what to do if it's not working. And so by giving them a process to follow... Through the awareness stuff and go, okay, well, let's square away your fixed living expenses first because you got to pay that stuff. And then let's look at your variable living expenses second and use sort of that slightly higher floating average, that conservative plan that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Then over any given period, that then sort of leaves those spendable, saveable dollars. And then from an awareness point of view, what you're really trying to do is say, okay, how low can you make your spending? Amount that you're allocating to yourself, and let's just use some average numbers here. Let's say it's fifty to sixty percent of their income goes to living costs, especially if they've kicked up into that that second range of five xing what their startup amounts were. Right? And let's say realistically, and we know what happens: you get spending creep. They get a better Absolutely. job, which means they get a better apartment and a better car, and you know they're eating branded food instead of ramen. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, and one of the big ones is is student loans actually kick in, right? They yeah. become off of their income-driven repayment. Now I'll give an example, my wife, she took out like 120,000 in debt. By the time we ended up refinancing, which was five years into her training, one year left of fellowship, it had ballooned up to 180,000. But during that time, she was only paying like 200, 250 bucks. And then we knew when we got married, we weren't gonna file separate, and it ballooned to like $800, which was hard because it was the same amount of income and the same amount of debt. It just, it was allocated differently because we got married. But then when she finished training, if we would have kept going down that same road, I mean, it would have gone to the standard repayment and that might have 10xed what the student loan payment went. So some of that fixed expense is just going to increase without anything to do. It's not lifestyle creep. It's just debts coming due, if you will.
1: And we've got the same model down here to a degree as well. It's uh, called HEX or help student debt. And yeah, as soon as you start earning more money, then the payments go up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got to understand that that's going to lift, right? But you're going to get to a point where let's say it's 50, 60, max hopefully 70% of your income is going to go to your living costs and that leaves you 30% to split between the other two. Now, we know using our different... Because we track all our clients' spending Mm -hmm. and then we split them up into different profiles, singles, couples, and families.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And we know that irrespective of which one we're going to choose, whether it's... I'm looking, I'm just flicking through them now. Singles, surprise, surprise, have the highest spending ratio and you know, couples have the next highest and families have the lowest because you have kids and lifestyle automatically goes down. But on average, it's this thing sitting around 20 21 22%. And this is year on year for the last five years. So we think realistically, like if you've by default, let's say you're spending 60% of your or you're allocating 60% of your income to your living costs, if you don't know what your what a reasonable, and we our clients talk about a decent lifestyle. Everybody wants mm-hmm. a decent lifestyle, but everybody's definition of decent is slightly different. Right? Absolutely. That's why percentages make so much sense when you're doing this because you can just link decent to a percentage. And then as your income goes up, then that percentage can go up commensurate to the income. So, if you say, well, I've got 60% of my costs are going to living, And obviously, if you're doing a proper budgeting process, you know exactly what that is. It's 61 or 59 or 62, not guessing, right? Let's assume you haven't done the budgeting stuff. You just want to get a sense of realistically what I should be aiming for. Then, you know, if 60% goes or 70% goes even, that leaves you with 30. You can go, well, realistically, 20 is the middle ground. So, I'd go 70 for living, 20 for spending, 10 for savings. And then you start that process of saying, well, should it be 20% on spending and 10% on savings or 19, 11, 18, 12? And then you just start to adjust. And the best way to adjust by far, this is where a lot of people fall over. That's why I said kids have got this thing right. If you have a strong reason to save and you actually reverse engineer this thing and you work backwards, mm-hmm. I am saving up for X. And you've got to break it down into 12-month blocks maximum. Yes, you can have long-term goals, but those long-term goals need to be carved up into 12-month targets over the next year, whether it's a calendar year, financial year, reporting year, whatever you want to use. Over the next 12 months, for me to hit my goal over whatever time frame that is, I need to save X amount of dollars. Convert that to a percentage and then see if it fits into your budget. But be realistic. If you have... 30 cents in the dollar left for splitting between spending and savings. And then you try and save like 25 of those, it's not going to work. Your brain has a really good, and again, I'm very conscious and I'm talking to doctors that have a better Mm -hmm. understanding of the human brain than I ever will. Be careful. Let's assume that uh, I I think this is a pretty well-known one. Like if you deprive yourself of something that makes you happy and human for a really long period of time, The bounce back is, in my experience, 10 times worse than what it would have ever been if you just had given it a little bit of room in the first place. So, if we're sitting there with our clients and they're trying to set their, especially their initial budget, because they have never done it before. And this is common, right? We're not taught this in school. We're not even really taught it in college or uni over here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got people in their mid-20s to late-20s earning really good coin or money like you've talked about and I've never budgeted before. And then they're going, Oh, I'm going to save 25%. I'm going to save 25% and I'm going to spend 5%. And we just go, Mate, you're drunk. It's just not going to happen. There's just no way you're going to stick to that long term. Mm -hmm. Much rather say, Let's just put it in the middle. Maybe you don't save as much for that goal in the first 12 months. Give yourself a chance to actually get some runs on the board, hit a target, set a target, hit a target. Our sport over here is AFL, Aussie rules. Australian rules football, it's, you know, the lunatics that jump around without helmets and oh, yeah. slam into people and jump on their shoulders. Anyway, the game's played in quarters, so similar to basketball and, and football and stuff like that. And we say, you know, the, if you're setting yourself an unrealistic goal, if you, let say you're the worst team and you haven't won a game for like 10 seasons, then you get a new coach, which is quite often what happens with the financial stuff. You get all pumped up and optimistic and they go, right, okay, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to win the whole thing. And it's an unrealistic expectation. It gets to quarter time and your team's getting belted and immediately their head drops and the psychology goes straight into, see, we knew we couldn't do this. Why did we listen to this lunatic to tell us that we should do this? We're just a failure. You know what the problem is? The problem's not us. The problem's him and the problem's the budget thing. So let's get rid of that and let's go back to being blissfully unaware. I mean, we were shit, but at least we didn't know that we were shit. He's putting it up in our face. Whereas... We really big to push back and go. Let's just be cautiously optimistic, but realistic. Be pleasantly surprised at the end of the first quarter. Set yourself, even if you think you can spend five percent of your income. Humor yourself, humor us. Make that double or triple. Realistically, nothing less than fifteen percent of your income. If you set a target of fifteen and or twenty, and you come in at you know twenty one percent or just one percent over. It's so much easier to manage when you set yourself a target that is realistic and you might only just miss it versus setting yourself something that's massively unrealistic and then feeling like a big failure because then everybody basically throws the whole process out. And that wrecks you because you're one quarter through what could be for some of your clients or some of your listeners if they're in their mid-20s. This is like a 40-year thing. So that's you know, it's 120 groups of three months and you're going to throw it out after one quarter because you've set yourself an unrealistic target.
0: Yeah. The hardest part is getting it in motion. And so I think a lot of this, when we're talking here and and they're listening to this is, okay, I've committed to this understanding of, I think this is important and I should do it. It's a little overwhelming. And we're talking here now about just understanding fixed and variable and kind of savings. And I, I actually, call this like paying yourself first. And when you design this with this big increase of income, and we're talking percentages, they might not necessarily know, you know, what percentage is normal? What should we be looking at? A lot of them are, are thinking like, we want to start a family or we just started one. We want to buy a house. We want to buy a car because my car is beat up. I've been driving this thing forever. And it's, you know, it's basically the steering wheel is going to fall off. And there's a lot of competing goals they might not necessarily know how all these goals play into it, along with saving for other things. And one of the things that I see a lot, and it's a common misconception, is debt. And when you've got your minimum payment, and then anything additional is actually part of your savings. You're saving that money for a reason, and you're going to accelerate maybe debt paydown, whether it's consumer debt or you know student debt. could be anything, but that's included in that savings number. And one of the things, Steve, that you touched on was You've got a long-term goal, but we're trying to break it up into 12 months. Let's say they had a goal of, I'm going to throw out some easy numbers here. They might not apply perfectly, but just for easy math. In three years, we want to buy a house and we need $36,000 to buy this house. You wouldn't just write the goal of 36000 and be done. What you're saying is cut it into at least 12-month segments. So, hey, I need 12000 each year or $1,000 each month. I put that money away, or at least I earmark it in my budget or my cash flow. And that's part of that 20% savings that you're referencing with what you're working on with your clients. And now they've taken this big goal, broken it down into something more manageable, and then they're breaking it down even more into a monthly piece. And now I think that's significantly more manageable, not, oh my gosh, I have to save $36,000. How the heck am I going to do that? It's, oh, I need to break down and I need to save a thousand of my of income that's coming in off my attending salary. So I think putting some perspective into this is helpful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You've got to pay yourself first. It's spot on because working backwards for us, it's always about working backwards from the savings target, working backwards from the goal. What's the goal? What do you want to achieve? When do you want to achieve it? How much do you need? Let's break that thing down and chunk it down. The problem with budgeting, as you've, you've already just referenced, is quite often... Your, well, not quite often, every single time, your living costs and your spending is either weekly, bi weekly, or monthly. Pretty much, I mean, some utilities could be bi monthly or quarterly, but then the goals are super long term 12 months, two years, five years, 10 years. And so there's this disconnect straight away between the two exercises. You're trying to save weekly, bi weekly, monthly for something that is, you know, 60 months away. In our brain, we go, well, that's five years, 10 years. So, the, the process has to be, you've got to break the goals down into savings target that lines up with your payment cycle. So, if these guys get paid, do they get paid bi-weekly or monthly normally? Could
0: be anything.
1: So, if it's monthly, then the, the savings target has to be converted into a monthly target. If they get paid bi-weekly, the savings target has to get converted into a, a bi-weekly target. We've got some clients in Australia that get paid weekly even. You've got to break it down into a weekly one. Because then, once you know the number, that's sort of one of the hardest parts. The rest of it's following the process, sticking to the promise that you made to yourself. At the end of the day, we always talk to our clients about there's two parts to the budgeting agreement your part and our part. Your part, your job is to give yourself a target that's reasonable. You're in charge of the numbers. We'll never tell you what you can and can't spend money on. You're a grown up, we're not your parents, we're not your big brother. You're in charge of this thing. So you're in charge of putting the dollars next to it. We're just going to make sure that you try and stick to that by allocating it the right way and then giving you feedback on how you're going, right? So once they get past that part, and quite often the fear around budgeting is that someone else is going to take control of my money, that someone else is going to physically take control of my money, which we never do, or psychologically take control of my money because someone else is going to set my budget for me. That's the Mm -hmm. worst thing to do. Because you're abdicating responsibility to someone else. So even if it wins, even if they hit their numbers, they're never going to feel like it was because of them. Everybody wants to feel like they're the driver of their own success, that the coach and the program, the budgeting program is just designed to help them get the most out of their numbers. So once you've gone through that initial phase of working out what the dollar figure is with my coach or by myself, I've worked out how I'm going to allocate this stuff, you know, when I physically spend it, but how am I going to code it? And I'm going to know what my numbers are. The hard part then is differentiating between what is spendable dollars and not spendable dollars. And then this is where what I think the most important part of the spending and savings program, which is actually the bank accounts and the banking structure. I think this bit is actually equally, if not more important than the budgeting. All the budget is is a promise. It's a promise that they're making to themselves. It's a target that they're shooting for. But what they spend is the money in the bank accounts and the money in the credit cards and the money that they've got access to. And so if you get that bit wrong or you pay no attention to getting this bit set up, they don't know if they're not hitting their budgets because they can't see it. There's no accountability within their accounts. But if you flip it around and you have this conscious, deliberate structuring of how they set their bank accounts up, which of my accounts are going to be for my living expenses? Which of my accounts are going to be for my spending? How many do I need? Is it 1? Is it 5? Is it 10? Where's my savings accounts? And something you talked about earlier, that debt and loans, we talk about loans as just being savings accounts that have a negative balance. You're still putting money into your savings. It's just taking off that negative balance one at a time. So, the next bit's actually more important as far as we're concerned, which is the banking part and making sure they've got that set up really well.
0: Yeah. You know, I look at budgeting here as we're kind of talking about is, is almost like, you know, dieting or a weight loss plan. If you set too aggressive of a goal, you're likely to relapse and fall back into shoving cake in your mouth. And the banking structure that you're referencing, what I look at that is you're deciding, hey, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to do all these great things. And then your spouse is over here baking cookies and you know, trying to feed you in and out burger and trying to turn to- in and outs uh, amazing,
1: by the way. Can we just say I'm, I'm okay with that every now and then? Because I think we've got an in and out over here now. Changed my really. life.
0: Ah, there you go. Well, I actually didn't know if you'd know that reference, but I think you spend enough time over here, you do. But it's your spouse then having all these temptations and all these things around you and not really supporting it. And you're more likely to fail just by proximity of what's around you. And I think the banking structure is the exact same way. If you don't look at your banking structure and set it up appropriately, then I think you're more likely to fail at implementation and long-term management over a budget. Steve, just briefly, can you tell everyone kind of what you think a banking structure could look like for them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about having three different types of accounts or you know, reasons for the accounts as opposed to what they're called, right? And so we talk about spending, storage, and savings. So, a spending account is an account where, surprise, surprise, you physically spend money out of. So, it'd be a bills account. It'd be maybe your bills and utilities or your bills and your living costs. And and so, your money goes in and then only your living costs are paid out of that account Mm -hmm. or the credit cards paid out of that account. Another type of spending account would be what we have and we set up for all of our clients here, which is a personal spending account and so that's a bank account where the budget that they've allocated to themselves for their own personal spending amount, you know, the guilt-free you can't tell me what I can and can't spend money on number. They have their own personal spending account for that. And typically we're trying to set it up in a way where it's really easy for them to be able to know the difference between the two. You know, they they use their spending account for themselves and then the bills account is only used for the joint living expenses or their own living expenses. And then typically here, you know, without giving advice, this is around usually one's got a credit card attached to it and the other one's got a debit card attached to it. So we're not, we're, we're deliberately separating the two. And then you can start to break that up even further. So you could have, if they were in a family unit already, so a little bit older and they've got a family, they might have, you know, mum and dad would have their own personal spending account each. And then there'd be like a family lifestyle account, which is where the budget that's been allocated for all of the family entertainment, family holidays, presents, you know, clothes, going out, the budget for that is allocated into that account. They either spend money out of that account or typically what they do is they'd set up like a simple transfer system that moves money back over into the accounts where they're spending.
0: Yeah. If you actually know what you're spending, as you start to work through this, then things become automated. You don't have to remember every month, oh man, I need to go transfer between these several accounts. Like things become automated once you have some knowledge and control over this. Steve, it reminded me when you said this of what Taylor and I did when we first got married. So I was a bit worried of how she spent money when we first got married. Not that I didn't trust how she was, because when we joined finances, it was the first time I've ever had joint accounts with anyone. And, you know, obviously when we were living together, we got engaged and then got married. And I said, honey, look, let's set this up to where one account pays all of our bills. And then we've each got a separate checking account, you know, titled Taylor spending, Ryan spending. And every month, a certain amount will get transferred in there and you can do whatever you want with it. You can, you know, save it up for several months and go buy a nice pair of shoes or dress or whatever it is, or You can spend it every month on whatever you'd like, but this is where it goes into. And I was coming from a position of, hey, this is the first time we've had joint finances. Let's just make sure we have some bumpers. And we ended up getting rid of that account after about a year because it worked for us, but then we had a really good grasp on it. And I just want to kind of add on to what we're talking about here is. What you're setting up isn't permanent. It doesn't have to stay this way forever. Think of it as like training wheels, right? You're just getting on the bike. You're learning. You got training wheels. We take them off. Now you're going faster. You know, it's how do you get these things in motion? What's the least path of uh, resistance in putting these pieces together?
1: Yeah. We talk about our clients in different stages. So singles, couples, families is the three obvious ones. But the one that you just referenced is usually the one that's the hardest one to deal with, which is the blender's where they they might have a joint Instagram account because they love each other very much, but their bank accounts have never met. Eventually, the bank accounts need to meet. So you're you're spot on with this stuff, mate. It's all about having a deliberate, well-thought-through process that goes, here's where I am now and this is how I need to manage my money now. And so I'm going to have my budget, which is the target or the promise that I'm going to make to myself. And then I'm going to have my bank accounts, which is where my money lives. And I'm going to make it really easy for me to see what's spendable dollars and what's not spendable dollars. And then I'm going to remove the temptation of me accidentally spending the unspendable. And then the last bit is the reporting and the feedback on how I'm going. And we'll talk about that as well. But apart from those three things, you've also got to have an eye to the next stage. Because I think that's one of the things is if you set this thing up that money has this really terrible way of... I see this all the time with our clients, especially with banking. Banking is the thing that it's like, I don't know, again, the doctors would, maybe one of the doctors can give me, send me a message and let me know what this term actually is. But I sort of feel like it's this pathway, like in your brain where because you do the same thing over and over and over and over again, you learn how to manage the process. But an outsider looking in and it goes, how does that not make you want to just scream? It's so stressful. But with banking, everyone seems to be okay. It's organized chaos. They understand like their own house. banking system. Yeah, but it's everyone else would go, this thing's a shitstorm. Like how do you live through that? And so you bring two people together that have their own organized chaos and then you got to try and find commonality across that. That's where we see the biggest sticking point. People are okay usually with dealing, even if it's their own imperfect solution, they know it and so they're okay with that. But as soon as you got to try and blend two imperfect solutions together, there's quite often a lot of clash. The benefit of having a logic that underpins the way you set your bank accounts up says, well, we're going to you know, attack the problem, not the person. We're going to take the issue of yours and mine out of this and we're going to turn it into, we need to logically migrate our money together. How are we going to do that so that we don't want to kill each other in the process? How do we keep our own privacy and our own money, like you've talked about the standalone accounts? But then how do we start to blend this stuff together? So that one is definitely a a much, much harder one to do. But if you get those first two bits right, the budget being the promise, the banking being a deliberate way that you set your accounts up. And then the one we didn't talk about was storage accounts, which is sort of that delayed spending. This Mm -hmm. is usually your quarterly or your yearly expenses or spending that you're not going to spend every month. You need to get that stuff out of your normal spending account. So holidays and Presence are usually your atypical examples of, of a delayed spend that are very infrequent. So, having a purpose-built standalone account for that makes perfect sense. Yeah, you get I- those two bits right, budgeting, banking. The last thing you got to do is then get your feedback, which is the reporting stuff. And this is something that your doctors should be all over because that's their job. Uh, in and amongst diagnosing what the problem is trying to fix the problem, then they've got to give feedback on how are we tracking to the plan? Were your results good, bad, neutral? Is it something that's drastic and requires surgery or is it more of a wait and see? We'll check back in after a month or two months or three months. And your numbers are exactly the same. You need to understand what you're looking for and then you need to understand how to interpret it and decide the course of action after that.
0: Steve, you brought up something really quick I want to touch on. Before we transition over to the reporting here, is the concept of you've got your storage account, which is your atypical spending, and some of these things you mentioned, like gifts or you know holiday shopping. Let's just assume you would celebrate Christmas, okay? Just to make this yep. easy, Christmas falls on the same day every year. Like you know, it's coming; it, it's not a surprise. It's there, and what I see a lot of people doing. Is they're trying to take control and then all of a sudden they forget, oh man, my budget was horrible this month. It just went out of control, you know, with the holidays. I had someone tell me, and this wasn't actually a client, this is just someone else that we were chatting on about cash flow, And they said, well, you know, our kids' birthdays are both in December and my mom's birthday is in December and the holidays and just December, we always get in trouble. But then January rolls around and we've got the resolution to like pay off what we did in December. And then it takes us a couple months, but we'll get back on our feet. And I'm sitting here scratching my head, like birthdays, you know, it. what day of the year that comes, That's not a surprise. Christmas is, you know, what day that's coming plan ahead. So taking that, you know, Hey, we spend, I don't know, $600 on Christmas gifts. Let's just say that's $50 a month, like put $50 a month into what Steve's calling a storage account and get it out of your normal spending. And then when Christmas rolls around or December rolls around, you're starting to do shopping, and you look at it and go, oh look, I've saved all year for this. My December isn't crap anymore. My December, I can actually pay this off and not start off the new year in trouble. So I encourage everyone listening, as you're listening to this you know, in January, for December that's gonna roll around, you know what's gonna happen if you do celebrate Christmas. Put money aside for holidays and other gifts. I don't care if it's Easter or Valentine's Day or whatever. Like if you're going to spend money around those gifts, get a good estimate of what you spend and stick it in the storage bucket. It makes sense. I don't know why people don't tend to think that way.
1: It's because they get, I agree, Matt, but I think it's people get stuck in the cycle of always being just one month or one quarter behind. And so they tend to go, oh, I hear it all the time. I would budget, but I've got this thing coming up. So, it's, I've got Christmas coming up and then I've got it's an anniversary coming up it's and, always and I thing, don't have the money. So, I've got, to, I've got to hit that thing and then I'll do it. And so, the problem is, it happens all the time. <laughs> it's not like life stops and you have this perfect little window. Now is the perfect time to budget. But you're definitely going to have problems trying to pick the perfect time. So, you sort of got to break it up and go, you know what? Look, New Year's resolutions is usually your peak time for when people want to get their money sorted and when they want to start the budgeting stuff and it also aligns really well with the calendar year and, and that's typically the way most people think about budgeting
0: which we- is weird because you know it when we look at this i'm big into behavioral finance i really like a lot of the stuff you've been saying and around that because it's really what this is it, it all stems from like wanting to take control and then understanding how do i relate this emotion to money so we're at a, a really interesting time now and i used to actually set resolution goals when i was younger and I don't now, I actually, I do set like yearly goals and, and try to break them into smaller, either quarterly or monthly goals. But I love this time of year, not necessarily because I kind of fall into it, but because everyone is so in tune with what they're trying to do. They're trying to lose weight. They're trying to you know get their finances in, in order, whatever it may be. I just hope that it extends the entire year and not a crash diet and done in February or March.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the, the risk is, especially if you've got big budget expense coming up in the first quarter. As you said, we chunk everything down and and we normally look at it with our clients over a three-month cycle, but then you give reporting on monthly and weekly. And I know we're going to talk about reporting in a second, so I'll finish off on this point. But like, if they've got a big expense coming up in the first quarter, they tend to go, oh, well, can we start after that? I go, there's no difference. You're going to spend that money anyway. So, if you don't budget for it, you're just going to feel bad." We need to go. What can you afford to do this year for this quarter? Let's say you know they're starting it in they're starting in January and they've got big or the anniversary or something comes up in March and they might not have saved for it. And you go, okay, well look, you got to realistically go. What can you afford to do this quarter for this anniversary that's coming up in March? But then you've got to. Start to pre-fill that pot so that next year, we're not going to get there. You just have to break. It's like rip the Band-Aid off in one go because otherwise, you're just constantly going to be getting something that's going to come up that's going to stop you from starting. And the way you get over it is you either don't spend the money that you don't have for the first time it comes around or... You go into debt like most of them do or you eat into your savings and then you draw a plan. You give that little, the amount of savings that you've used that you shouldn't have used, that becomes one of your goals to refill that bucket, to get it back to where it needed to get back to. And that's where then your reporting gives you your real world you know, line or your results around what are you actually capable of doing? Are you on plan? Are you ahead of plan? And then that's where the program and the coach can then start to make suggestions around what to do to improve things, you know, give you a pat on the back when you're going really well. So understanding your reporting side is is the flip side of the budget.
0: Okay, so we're going to take a break in the conversation here. There was so much excellent content in the show. I couldn't stomach editing any of it out. And if I didn't, it wouldn't actually fit in our usual 40 to 45 minute show. So we're breaking it into two parts and in the second part we're going to discuss a bit about New Year's resolutions as well as dive a bit deeper into behavioral finance and why it's so important. I'm super pumped that you decided to take some time out of your day to listen to me yap about finances. It's my passion and I can get a little nerdy about it but this information is for you and I'm happy to be the messenger. While I'm honored to have you here with me I can't give you any specific advice on your financial situation through the show. You need to consult an attorney, a CPA, or shoot, reach out to me directly for any financial advice you need before you go make any big money decision. It's just the smart thing to do until next time. Cheers.